Hello and welcome to the Two Bricks, One Orange Ball podcast. In this second part of episode 10, we delve further into Sam Nita's thoughts on the current status of the BBL, GB basketball and his standout moments in starting Hoops Fix in 2010, as well as his future aspirations for the brand. We'll reveal Sam's aspirations to own his own BBL franchise, his thoughts on the very controversial decision from Basketball England to reject the GB great Potsman Sabonsu's application to their board on the grounds that he wasn't qualified, despite being a GM for the Capital City Go-Go of the NBA G League. We'll also get his general thoughts on the great podcast that was the Dagan Pops series and his slight frustrations with the British basketball community when supporting the growth of the British game and much more. So welcome back to Sam Meter. Moving to the GB basketball segment, obviously you've been you've been covering them pretty extensively for you know the best part of a decade now. I know you mentioned you know in the university days that you had you didn't really know anything as such you know very early on about those teams. When did you kind of first start seriously kind of following those guys and did you have a potential uh, favourite player on, on those early squads? The first time I really started finding the national team was during the Black British basketball campaign in 2010. Uh, I, I mean I genuinely don't think before then I even well we did have a national team for obviously four years before then but before then there was just the England Commonwealth Games squad and, and before then there hadn't been a team for I don't know like a decade or something like that so 2010 was really my first sort of real summer covering it being involved in it being interested in it favorite players I mean I don't know I like I like them all obviously seeing Lowell in the flesh is incredible you know it's it's clear that he is a ridiculous talent and seeing pops is like pops is just the most unbelievable athlete you will ever see and he's just always been a super likable personal personable guy but then yeah like some of the younger guys as well like I the podcast I recorded yesterday was that's coming out next week was with, with Ryan Richards, who is someone. There's a lot of players now that I'm very closely aligned with their journey, in the sense of I've been covering them since 2010, when they were 18, 16, whatever it was, and then seeing their entire progression through until now, and that's super in, nice for me to see. Like someone like Luke Nelson, who we first dropped a mixtape of at the Junior Final Fours when he was 15, 16 years old, now represent the Great Britain seniors uh, as a, was he, he's 20, 25 now. It's crazy. Like, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, obviously the longer you're involved with it, the more you see and the sort of, the more stories that you know uh, and can be invested in. So yeah, like all, all of those, all of those players, especially the younger guys from, from around 2009, 2010, where really our paths have been next to each other. Like I've covered every single, you know, move to the States when they signed in college, when they signed their first pro contract, when they first got their first GB senior call up. Yeah. And obviously I, I really enjoy and take great pleasure in, in seeing their success. So anyone that, that I've been involved with like that, for sure. And obviously the longer, the longer it's been, the, the deeper the relationship is, I guess. Uh, again, not wanting to focus on the kind of, the kind of negative side, but um Obviously, we've had the, the many the many hurdles of, of funding cuts over the years, and again, just kind of going through those from from the outside. You know, we've had I think one of 1.2 million in 2011, then 2012 we had potentially the entire pot went, and you obviously were involved with the the kind of fun British basketball campaign with yourself and I think Russ Levinson of the Riders, who you know helped to restore that that um, basketball funding, as well as you know letters from people like Luol Deng, um, David Stern, Sir Clive Woodward. 2014, we had, again, funding withdrawn from UK Sport after failing to, to meet some of the targets in 2013 that were set out. Uh, and obviously, the more recent ones in kind of February 2018, where, you know, there was a lot of players out of tournaments and we had the 
the kind of desperation to get that 500k to enable us to kind of still operate as you know across age groups and across international competition you've been really close to it and that you know you've, you've you've asked liz nickel i believe uh, who is i think the ceo of uk sport herself some questions in terms of like you know what are the the biggest barriers to why this keep keeps happening for the sport what what do we need to do and i think one of the things that that came up was the fact that we have so many players that are kind of based abroad and not necessarily playing domestically and i just wondered if that was kind of one of the reasons that obviously you're, you're very passionate about bringing um in keeping british basketball uh, and improving it in this country is, is that one of the motivations i suppose to in, help ensure that we don't keep going through this cycle of, of needing to kind of overcome potential cuts in the future? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think t- two things, like to go to circle back to kind of what you said at the start, like one of the f- my personal bugbears is, is everyone, there's a lot of people that are like, no one can be negative about British basketball. We've all got to be positive because we need to ensure that the perception is this. And it's like, no, 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 no. I'll always remember Justin Robinson said to me, like, never be, never apologize for speaking your truth. Never apologize for speaking the truth. And, you know, the way you deal with problems is to talk about them. I don't think, you know, things that are perceived as negative, they're never going to change unless they're addressed. And if no one talks about them, we all sweep it under the carpet and it's never going to be dealt with anyway. So I've got no qualms about being negative about it. And I think we actually, on some level, in some instances, need to be more negative than we are. On the funding thing, I have mixed feelings about it. You know, as much as we can say that, that, well, first of all, the thing that people seem to regularly confuse is there's two angles of funding you've got uk sport which is what funded the gb programs which is the elite focus of their program which before all of the junior national teams became gb originally in the original inception it was uk sport were funding essentially just the senior men and women and just the under 20 program and then they ended up putting a futures program kind of in between that but that was all that money was for in the run of 2012 in terms of that funding from uk sport which is based on medal hopes only uh, at that time, GB's received like 14 million pounds. That's not a small amount of money. Uh, there was a lot of money spent on the British basketball program, both in the run up to the Olympics and, and then obviously after 2012, there's a couple, couple more sort of bits of money that were given. I don't think we have a lot to show for that. And so from that angle, you know, as much as I do think basketball in this country is drastically underfunded, where it's more underfunded is actually at the grassroots from a Sporting England perspective. So it's Sporting England that funds the home nations in terms of basketball and, 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 and whatever. And that's where if you look at sort of the numbers, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense that basketball is, is, is not getting the money that's getting. And it just the entire way the federations are set up, having this separate performance arm, which was heavily overfunded, if you want to call it that, which technically wasn't even allowed to spend money on the grassroots because that wasn't part of UK sports remit. So, you know, the British Basketball Federation wasn't allowed to take any of that money and say, oh, we're going to set up some participation programs at the grassroots level or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's, it's, I have super mixed feelings about it because I, I don't think money is the only answer. That's proven by what happened at the Olympics and what's happened as a result of, of the Olympics because we had plenty of money. We had 40 million pounds. But at the same time, it's quite obvious that from a sporting perspective, the sport is drastically underfunded and does need more money. But again, kind of the things you were saying in terms of your question, the sport needs to become more self-sufficient. And unfortunately, every organization we've had, whether it's British Basketball, British Performance Basketball, British Basketball Federation, Basketball England, has always been reliant on government handouts and has never been able to put themselves in a situation where they have any type of substantial commercial income. And it's like, well, then partly it's our own fault 
because that's our job. Like that is our job as a sport is to get more money into it. Like it would be interesting to, and again, I don't know the comparison, but it would be interesting to look at other sports and look at how much funding they get from, from the government, but then also what their commercial revenue streams are. And obviously I know in the UK it's super tough because football takes up the vast majority of everything that is going. But at the same time, I do think we could do a lot better. I do think that we should be able to bring in a lot more money commercially than we do. Uh, It's crazy to me that even when you look at National League Division 1, that we can't fill those final events. Like, it's stupid to me. Like, what, we can't sell, what, 1,000 tickets? Like, really? So, yeah, the, the, funding, the funding one is, a, is an interesting debate. Definitely, sport is underfunded, but definitely we have misspent funds in the first place and definitely we have mismanaged ourselves so that we don't have enough commercial revenue streams, private revenue streams, so that we're not always going back to the government and saying, can you give us more money, please? Not a not a small question, Sam, and probably that's that's related to what we've just talked about, and we could probably talk about it all day. But what do you think was the critical failure from GB that meant we didn't get much of a legacy for basketball from the 2012 Olympics? The critical failure was just not planning to have a legacy. I don't know what plan was put in place to even capitalise it. And I always said, I, I did a thing, uh, I did an article, kind of quite, I think the year after the Olympics. Well, no, no, maybe I, I think I did an article in the run-up to the Olympics when I was doing a little bit more opinion pieces and stuff. And it's like, let's just say that the London 2012 Olympics causes a massive, massive spike in interest for basketball. All of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of kids want to play basketball. Well, where are they going to play? We don't have enough clubs to support that many players anyway. So it's like, even if it did spark a massive, massive level of interest they're still going to face the same barriers. They're still going to face the same issues with getting access to a court, getting on, you know, like the facilities issue, getting access to a club, like where is their nearest club? How much um, resource does the club have to be able to run the amount of sessions that necessarily you would need if you were suddenly overflowed? How many coaches do we have? How many, if you've got more players, you need to play more games. That means you, means you need more officials. Like there was, there was nothing done to really capitalize on, on like there was no forward thinking for the moment. I, I, I feel like, and again, maybe someone can correct me, but, but the moment we won the bid, I struggle and I have not seen any document that was produced that says we have now won the London 2012 Olympics bid. We've got, what is it, six years? Six years leading. Was it awarded in 2006 or 2005? Maybe it was seven years? 2006, I think, yes. It's five, five, six years or whatever. This is what we need to ensure is in place. So when the Olympics come, we are ready to capitalize. There was nothing. Like nothing. Mm. I don't suppose- Dewall has has kind of come out and said that he got pretty disenfranchised, right? Like about the whole thing, and you know, for everything that he did for that team, for the us as a as a as a nation, basketball wise, and obviously the camps he has, you know, and all, all the things that he still does. You know, do you know much about why he did he give a reason? And again, apologies if if he did cite this, but did he give a reason for why he just said enough is enough in terms of playing for the national league? And so for the national team, sorry, at the end of it, was there was there a clear rationale, or was it just you know I've, I'm kind of washing my hands of it? He's, I mean, I don't I don't want to speak for him, but I'm I'm pretty certain that he said, uh, if you dig hard enough, I'm sure you can find it. He said something along the lines of, I wouldn't be adverse to playing again, but it needs to be on the condition that they come to me with a plan, mm-hmm. like this is how we're going to use you and we're going to capitalize on sort of having you playing in the national team, the national team program to make basketball grow in this country. Because right now, 
you know, you you could hear from the Deng and Pops podcast, and it's not just them two. Like a lot of the players that have been involved with the GB program over the years, unfortunately, do not have a lot of good things to say about the British Basketball Federation. That, and again, to be clear, there's been a lot of staff that have changed over, over those period of time. There was a very different group of people that were involved in the run up to the Olympics and during the Olympics to now. But the relationship between the federation and the players is not good, and it's never really been good. And so, yeah, like, I think from the world's perspective, it's just like, well, what's the point in playing if it's not actually changing anything? You know, that's, that's why I want to play. I want to inspire kids. I want to help grow basketball in this country. And if, if I'm doing my piece, I'm doing my bit by showing up and playing and being an NBA player with a lot of money at risk at, the, at this oh, time yeah. and willing to put my body on the line to represent my country, I expect you to do your bit. And, you know, I don't think GB has held up their, their part of the deal. In terms of... Um... What, what, what was said in the World Pops podcast it was quite eye-opening to me that the feedback that he got from the Bulls themselves in terms of actually playing and how much of a risk he was taking. That's crucial. And, you know, he was not on small money, as you say, is when doing that. So what, what could have been in a lot of ways, but also, you know, in terms of the performance side of the Olympics, I think if Pops doesn't have that injury to his knee, if we, if we had that one-point swing or two-point swing against Spain, if we didn't have necessarily that, that slight crumble against Australia, like, all of these variables, it could have been you know, potentially very different. I was lucky enough to be there against the, the China game, obviously the only game they won. And to see so kind of Kieran Chara going off in that game was kind of awesome to see. As you say, it was, you know, there's so much more potentially could have been done um, from the other side. So obviously they did their part in terms of playing. And yes, people argue they didn't do quite enough because they didn't get the wins that we needed. But, you know, if we rattle off the, the score lines, you know, they lost to Spain by one, as you say. They lost to Brazil by, I think, what is it like five points Russia they were quite far down against which is annoying for me because I have Russian family so I was giving them lots of shit about how we were going to smash them but that's besides the point all that being said Sam do you think that we are now on a positive path and if we're not how close do you think we are to getting there (laughs) are we on a positive path uh being a hundred percent honest no i i don't think things are improving like i think there are certain things that are getting better like i've always i give the bbl credit i think in the time that i've been covering the sport the bbl has made substantial progress from where it was when i first started but on on the whole i i don't necessarily think i don't think we're producing more talent than we used to i don't think necessarily that we're performing better than we used to i don't think there are more opportunities necessarily for kids to play than they used to be. I mean, I don't think there are more registered members or more clubs than they used to be. So, like, there's a lot of things that aren't, I don't feel, moving in the right direction, for sure. And what would what would it take to change it? I mean, that's the, that's, that is the million-pound question, isn't it? Question, like, you know, yeah. whoever works that out is the one that's going to make a lot of money because clearly there is an opportunity there that people have spoken about for multiple decades but no one has really been able to crack so for me and i've said this numerous times it starts with the leadership and i think until we have strong leadership nothing will change i genuinely think that some of the changes that could be made are very simple and obvious and could be done relatively quickly if there was the desire to do so but until you have the right people in the right places i struggle to see how anything is going to change. An organization is only, only as strong as its people. Yeah, the federations need, need, need stronger people in, in higher places to, to really drive the sport forward. And that's not to discredit anyone that's working at the federations now, 
But I think if you're going to look at things objectively and say, what is changing, what is clearly changing for the better, I, I don't think that people can point to that many things. So I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm forever the optimist. As much as I can be negative about the sport, I, I remain... Oh, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I do if I really thought that there was no hope of it ever working. But it's a, yeah, it's a long-term thing as well. It's never going to happen overnight. It's, it's a, you know, someone needs to come in and say, this is a, a 10 to 15-year approach that we're taking to it. And this is where we want to be. And this is how we're going to get it. And we're going to work backwards. We're going to reverse engineer it from that point on. What do we need to do to get X amount of players playing the game? What do we need to do to get X amount of basketballs into schools and the curriculum or, or whatever it is? Yeah, that's it. And we, we need people that are going to be entrepreneurial when they're thinking to try and bring innovation tech into the space to help, to help push it forward. And, and, and moving on to the BBL, mate, and specifically, obviously, we, we've covered a little bit in terms of funding and GB there, but the big news that came today from, from yourselves, as you say, is, is the Lions uh, getting accepted for qualifications to the Basketball Champions League. And obviously, that's something that, that Vince was, was talking about a lot in the, in the pod. Is following up from Leicester, obviously, doing it a couple of years before. You know, how, how big do you think that is for the UK game? Now, obviously, I think it was a condition of some of the funding that they got recently again. But do you think that's potentially going to be a start of positive things to come in terms of more clubs trying to do that as an, from an ambition standpoint? I mean, I think the ambition has always been there. I think if you ask any any BBL club, they'll all say they want to be in Europe. It's just the it's just the financial side of things and the practicalities of actually making it happen. Obviously, the Lions are in a unique situation where they've got they're under new ownership. They've got you know a decent amount of money that have, that's enabling it to happen. It remains to be seen what happens with COVID and stuff. You know, I obviously it could be a scenario where London Lions are playing at the cough box and not allowed any fans in there it could end up being a massive missed opportunity in that sense because, well, they, they've got no other choice. But then on the flip side of that, the draw is very favourable for them in terms of their oppositions and, and it qualifies to qualify for the, for the regular season. And other teams will be operating on reduced budgets too. So actually, if there's a chance to make some noise, pick up a win, obviously do, do better than, than Leicester did on, on, in their attempt, this could be it. Like, I hope it makes some noise. I hope the fact that it's a London team will make a difference in terms of maybe just penetrating, penetrating into the sort of mainstream media a little bit because Leicester really obviously struggled with that. But being in London, I think, is, is an advantage that, that the Lions have when you're talking about sort of getting, getting mainstream media coverage. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's positive. It's the thing that everyone's always saying is we need, we need to be competing in Europe regularly. You know, Leicester did it season before last Obviously, had no one last season, and now the Lions are doing it. So that again is is a huge positive, and hopefully they can retain a sort of British core that they've had for a number of years, and we can see them sort of flying the flag on the continent and and doing well. For that, in terms of you know what we talked about a little bit earlier, in terms of how marketing comes have improved it from the BBL side. Obviously, we've talked about generally, but do you think that's you know taking strides? Obviously, you've got. People like the Flyers that are doing very, very positive things as part of British sport. You've got someone like Joe Pynchon, um, who was obviously at the Riders and now at the Bulls. But the things that he's been able to achieve there at Leicester and in terms of digital storytelling, I think it's along with some of the stuff that the Royals were doing. Um, and then obviously how you're contributing in terms of the SAS platform, seeing clubs potentially across the board improving some aspects of their, their digital marketing. Do you think we're on a positive line in terms of that side or do you think there's still some the same issues existing i mean there's still a lot of the same issues i mean when you think about the fact that london lions were announced they were competing in european competition at about nine o'clock this morning and it is 10 past five 
and there has been no official press release from the London Lions kind of is symptomatic of some of the issues. The BBL was, did put out a press release about, about an hour before we jumped on a call. So what was that, about two o'clock-ish? So again, but BBL obviously got staff furloughed. It's a different situation. But my whole thing is the investment seem, the investment from, from the Lions standpoint, the investment seems to be for real, right? It's clearly there, there is actual real money there. But if you're really going to put in significant budget into doing this, competing in Europe, but then you're not going to do anything to beef up your front office and ensure that you've got a marketing and comms person, someone that's actually going to communicate uh, your story and get it in front of people to then increase the ticket sales and grow the fan base and all that kind of stuff. You're going to struggle. And it makes me question the whole thing. It's like, do, does the new ownership really care about this investment or is it so small time and a, ma- a tiny part of their portfolio that it's not really a thing? Because surely if you've just made a London team go into Europe and I, who was the last London team to go into Europe? I couldn't even tell you. Probably London Towers. So you're talking about almost 20 years that you've got a London team in European competition and you haven't even sent out a press release. Like, I mean, that is the most basic of things to do. And then it's going to be the BBL clubs, owners, whoever that complain that they struggle to break into the mainstream media, you know? Um, so yeah, on, on the comm side, there is a lot of work to be done a hundred percent. Yes, there are certain clubs that do a great job. But at the same time, there are also clubs that, that, that continue to struggle and they're kind of not all at the same level. And, you know, I would like, it would be good for the league to put in some sort of level of minimum standards. I think there are, but whether or not, I don't think they're enforced in any type of way. Clubs generally need to be way more, what's the word, accommodating to media and encouraging media coverage, making sure that when the media come, they feel like I can get everything that I need. I can do my job. I've got access to the players I need to get access to. But like I was saying, like, the marketing comm side is not just press releases and a bit of social media. It's also your websites and your actual digital platforms. And still, you know, like I said, the, the league website needs completely redoing to be made more captivating. And then needs to do a better job of, of kind of the storytelling around the league and the players. I mean, don't get me started on key motion and the, the, the live stream is set up. Like again, I just, I cannot see a situation where that sells the sport to anyone. I can't see a situation where a fan watches that and says, this looks so polished that I am going to go down and, and buy a ticket and go to a game. You just can't do anything with it. Like the highlights from it look terrible. It's just the product's not ready. And you can see, you can see on the owner's podcast, I feel like none of them were happy with it. And you can see when I spoke to Bob Hope, he also wasn't happy with it. But they're still going to carry on with it. And that to me is just stupid. It's like, so we're all admitting that the product isn't good enough. We all recognize the product isn't good enough and it's not serving the fan but we're going to carry on with it anyway because we've got a multi-year deal or whatever and we're not going to do anything to change it. They need to revert back to doing a manual. But again, it's the whole thing about it saves them resource because they don't need to have a volunteer manning the camera or whatever. But I don't think that's what the league should be aspiring to. We're a professional league. If we want to you know, up our game and be respected, then that's what it takes. It's like it takes doing things that are a little bit more hard, maybe a little bit more expensive, but in the long term, like serve the game better. You know, it's, it's crazy to me that all of last season's games, the permanent record of them in the history books, for a lot of them will be filmed like it's being filmed from a security camera in the rafters. It's like that is, that is the footage that we have of this performance or this season or, or whatever. It's just, that's frustrating. So yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that I think could be done on, on the marketing comm side. Obviously, the league brought in Selena Conroy in February, who's going to be the new, the new marketing comms director, manager, whatever you want to call it. So it'll be interesting to see how she gets on and whether or not they can make headway in that space. No, absolutely that, mate. And um, 
But that being said, uh, you have created some really great podcasts with the establishment, if you like, recently with people like Bob Hope, as you've alluded to, and the various members of the owners panel. What was your biggest takeaway from those conversations? Hmm. I mean, the owners podcast, well, the thing that everyone's talking about is the whole pathway stuff. So whether or not, you know, that was the part of the conversation that kind of piqued everyone's interest. And my own personal opinion of it, I think they railed way too hard on academies for sending kids to the US and they railed way too hard on kids, you know, for Vince to say, 90% 90% of kids that go to the USA are wasting their time. I mean, that is just complete nonsense based on zero data whatsoever. There is no, no facts that, that back that statement up at all. And if you were to ask the vast majority of kids that have gone to the States, there are very few that genuinely regret doing it. The tricky part of that whole, tricky part of that whole conversation is we don't have enough counterexamples to actually compare to. So, you know, it's all well and good saying if a player was sustained a BBL, we would develop them better and they would be a better player or, or whatever. But, until players are willing to do that, you could, there's no comparison because everyone wants to go to the States. You know, the one, and on the same basis, you know, I've seen some, some people being like, the States is always the best option. Facts, you know, like that is, that is, and it's just like, well, no, it's not. There are, Miles Hessen is the one example that I give who never went to the States, stayed in the UK, and genuinely in the BBL developed to a point where he's now gone to way higher leagues. All of us, all as a result of, you start over Essex Pirates, went to Mersey and then, and then I don't know if he left after that or he was in for a bit before, before leaving. But that's, that's proof that it's possible. You know, he's now played in you know, Germany, France at a high level and obviously is arguably the main guy on the GB national team. And he was essentially developed in the BBL. So yeah, there are plenty of guys that go to the States and, and maybe don't develop as people expect and come back four years later and, and not where maybe you'd expect them to be. But at the same time, there are plenty of guys that go to the States and that's where they developed and came back 10 times better than they ever were before, before they were in the UK. It's just, I think all of these conversations, people look at things so black and white and it's just, it's just not a black and white conversation. There's just so much nuance to it. So much depends on who the player is, where they're going, what situation they're going to be in, what they want out of it and all that stuff. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a simple answer to that, but yeah, in terms of, in terms of the takeaways, obviously that was, that was an interesting point for me. And then I think the biggest sort of overall thing is, is just, it's, it's almost just humanizing the owners and recognizing that they are people. <laughs> they are doing the best job that they can do. They are trying to act in what they think is in the best interest of the sport, which obviously not everyone agrees with how they act, but everyone's got different opinions on what's in the best interest of sport or whatever. And that side is that side obviously is, is very rarely communicated. You know, how often do the owners get interviewed and has a round table discussion ever been done with, with, with five BBL owners like talking about sort of how they run their clubs and, and how they perceive things, how they look at things like that. That's the stuff that just helps everyone get an understanding of the environment we're in. The, the, you know, like the podcast is funny. Like as much as I like doing the player stories, the stuff that interests me is actually the, the, the off court business management side of things, the sports management side of things, because that's kind of where I see myself going, but also that's what's going to help the game in the sense of people understanding what the issues are to then come up with their own solutions to help combat those issues. I feel like that arguably will help the game if, if we had more business people, business-minded people involved with the sport than you know, hearing about a player's career, as much as I think that is massively important as well. Yeah, the biggest takeaway was just sort of humanising the owners and recognising that, yeah, they're people. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me personally, like it asks so many questions as well, like in terms of, you know, what if the salary cap had no idea about that? 
but you know you, you almost took a massive list of my questions to be honest if, if I didn't know about the BBL I haven't for 10 years and you kind of just ticked them all off so for me it was it was brilliant like you know what was it 250k salary cap I think they have and then you know in terms of the investment you'd need to start a franchise what is it 150k so and again when we come on to talk about it in a second like in terms of Llewellyn and Pops potentially looking to do that for them that is a, a small amount of money but again as you say it's it's about you know, what do they get back for that money in terms of that initial investment? What are the supporting elements that they're being provided? It kind of moves on to like the next couple in terms of valuations of clubs and in terms of the guys that are considering that at the moment. And again, I, I say considering pretty broadly, because only just because of my interpretation, but with obviously Solent and how well they did recently, do you think if, if you were in Solent's position as a member of management, would you be looking to push for BBL contention or and 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 becoming a club in the BBL or what would your thoughts be on that? If I personally was involved, yeah, 100%. But obviously I have a vested interest in British basketball and, and wanting to be, like, I have my own aspirations of owning a BBL franchise one day and doing trying to do things the right way and trying to make my own impact sort of down that route. So, and that's kind of when you're talking about the valuations and stuff is exactly kind of, of what they said. Something's worth ha- how much someone's wanting to pay for it. And, you know, all of these conversations are not a, are not a black and white conversation. Like it's very much, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Like if, if one, if one organization has certain access to certain things that they believe will allow them to fill the cough box every single week for every single home game, well, the franchise becomes worth a lot of money, a lot of money. Meanwhile, if you don't have that network and you, you are going to go in and it's going to operate at the same level that it already operates at, it's obviously not not worth as much because you don't you don't have the capacity to be able to make it a bigger revenue generating thing. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I felt like uh, in the podcast when I said, so what do they actually get for the front? Like you know, when you buy a franchise, generally what you're doing is you're buying a, a system and process that will work and a brand that people will recognise. So a lot of the work is already done for you. All you've got to do is just execute. And I'm like, so what do you what do you get for the franchise fee? And Yuri basically said, you get advice from us. Uh, and it's like, so there's no formal arrangement of like kind of explaining how to do things. Like, I know you've got to pick up the phone and you ask. And I, I know from the, the London City Royal situation, part of that, the owner refused to pay his franchise fee in large part in the, the, during the second part of the season was because of the fact that he was like, I haven't received any value for my franchise fee. Like I don't, like I'm not being, I haven't been given a blueprint to copy, to follow which obviously Yuri said they're working on, which clearly is something that they need, need to work on. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're Solent, so much of this stuff, and again, this is to sound like a, a BBL owner, because again, my opinion has changed. I've, I feel like I've become more aligned with a lot of owners thinking in recent years compared to when I first started. But if you don't have a facility, it makes things incredibly challenging. And if you're Solent and you're already filling the facility every single week, you don't have anywhere bigger to move into, you're not going to make more money from that. You're not going to get TV on a t- on TV deal. The only thing which which Paul Blake spoke about was that by being a BBL club, there are a certain number of people that are interested in it, which gives you a certain level of gravitas because you're a professional club, which means that you're going to get media coverage. You're going to get people potentially buying tickets. Well, Solent doesn't have a problem selling tickets anyway. And I, I feel like they probably get relatively decent local media coverage anyway. So the only reason to do it would be to say we're a BBL club basically, unless they have a bigger venue to then be able to capitalize on it in a way that becomes a, you know, a much more of a, of a financial upside thing. I would actually love to have the owner of, of Solent on a podcast to talk to him about all this stuff, to find out kind of how he looks at it and what 
goes into his thought process process around it. But clearly, there's there's no doubt that they could compete in the BBL from a talent standpoint. When you look at the roster and how how they how well they did this season, but yeah, it comes down to it. There's just a number of different factors, and it's it's not easy for anyone. Like running a BBL franchise is definitely clearly not easy by the fact that you look at since the leagues existed how many clubs have come and gone and so as as me, as much as like this is one another like so many armchair commentators right that are gonna spout off on twitter about this is what clubs need to be doing this is what people and they've never sold a ticket in their life never tried to sell a ticket in their life and it's like well until you've done that you literally are coming at it from a completely ignorant position and your opinion is what from my opinion your opinion is worth nothing to me because you don't have the experience to um well to have that opinion you need to you need to have done it right so yeah it's a long way of saying that if i personally was involved with Solent, yeah i would do it because i'd want to be in the bbl but if you're looking at it as a business decision i don't know just sort of following on from that um what did you think of vince's valuation of bbl teams at approximately 1.2 million uh, without including many elements, what, do you think that that's a, a realistic valuation in your mind? I think, well, like I said, it depends who the buyer is. It just depends on who the buyer is. Like if you, if you genuinely think that you are going to be able to capitalise on a London French, like being in London definitely adds weight to it for sure. If I genuinely thought that I could sell the copper box out every single week and if I genuinely had relationships with sponsors that I knew that I'd be able to sign as a result of having a professional team and I had uh, let's say a business network that I could use the franchise for corporate hospitality staff and, and everything else there are all these sort of other benefits that people don't normally associate with uh, having a professional franchise then like then yeah of course of course uh, I don't I don't think you know saying saying the London Lions is worth 1.2 million I don't think that is completely ridiculous even though potentially if you were to look under the bonnet especially before they took this round of investment there was a lot of debt but i said again if you're if you know what you're doing and you've got the network to make it work uh then of course it is moving on how much does it mean to you to be embraced by the british basketball community like you have been uh, that's true of fans and players how has it been with owners and employees of teams such as the media and for newcomers as well, such as myself in recent times to the British basketball scene to sort of have you as that main source. Yeah, I mean, like, it's obviously massively, massively humbling. You know, Greg said something on, on the podcast, Greg Tanner from Streetball.com UK said something where after he'd done it a little bit, he kind of started feeling like he had a duty to kind of all of the people that were watching his stuff. And I feel very much the same way where I feel a duty to serve the community to serve the audience and you know i have like for sure it's not always easy like i definitely have my struggles especially on the on the financial side of things but i i have a, a folder on my desktop of it's called something along the lines when your things are feeling difficult and i've got screenshots of emails of tweets of nice things that people have said about how much my work has impacted them how much they enjoy it how much they appreciate it that someone's doing stuff with british basketball so it's yeah, it's it's massively humbling, and I'm yeah, I, I love being a part of it. Like I, I take great pride in trying to serve that audience and trying to do a a good job of of helping grow the game and grow the coverage of the game. On the flip side of that, of course, when people say things that are negative, that stings too. And unfortunately, <laughs> as much as you can have all the positive stuff, it's always the one, the one person that says some dumb comment that you just can't let go and you're thinking about it all night. Like, I can't believe that they thought 
that I was doing this or I was thinking this or they don't enjoy this or they think I do too much of this and not enough of this. But yeah, on the whole, like 100%, the vast majority of uh, feedback that we get is, is overwhelmingly positive and the relationships we have across the sport are overwhelmingly on the positive side. And that actually makes things very tricky from a, and this is kind of why I don't like to say that I'm a journalist. From a journalism perspective, you know, I should be 100% independent, neutral, and be willing to cover stories that might be a bit more negative or incriminate certain people. And that has always been a real challenge for how to nav- navigate. And it's kind of certain places where I have certain relationships. I'll, if, if I feel like something's coming, it's going to be critical. I'll try and have a conversation with that person before and say, look, we're doing this or whatever. But then also, I'm not going to lie, there's, there's stuff in the past that I haven't covered because I don't want to put that player or whatever in, in a bad light. When technically I know that as a journalist who covers a sport, everyone's talking about it. It's what everyone's talking about, but I just don't want to cover it because it's like, I just feel it's a bit stupid. But again, that's something that I have to navigate. It's my own stuff because I do. And that's where, that's where when you talk about Mark Woods as a true, like Mark Woods, as much as every journalist needs to try and maintain relationships and stuff, if there is a story, Mark will publish it. And that's where he is like a true He's true to the craft, you know. Um, he doesn't hold back on things and, and says what needs to be said. And I think we need more people like that because the, the, the truth and the honesty, when you're talking about controversies or things that are going on that shouldn't be happening, it's never going to come to light if, if people don't cover it. So that's something that, that I have to work on as well, uh, for sure, and not always be looking to try and protect people because... Yeah, like I think that, like I said, I would have no, if someone wants to write a negative article about me, if it's fair and it's true, mm. I'm not going to complain about it. You know, if it's lies and it's not fair and doesn't give me a right <laughs> reply, it's a completely different thing. But I know I wouldn't do that, right? Like if I'm going to be publishing something, it's going to be true and it's going to give them a right reply. So, yeah. I suppose as well that, that that's going to allow people to grow and improve long term, even though, it's, like you say, quite rightly, as long as it's true and objective fact then that's going to ultimately help facilitate growth, you would, you would yeah, like yeah. to think. Um, well, one, yeah, go on, sorry. I was going yeah, to say 100%, the whole, the whole point of journalism is holding, is holding people in positions of power to account 100% that like, when there is stuff going on that shouldn't necessarily be happening, if people feel like, well, if, this, if, if Hoops Fix is on this and asking questions about it, you know, we need to check ourselves and, and sort of act in a different way, well, then, yeah, that helps the sport. And that's for sure... Uh, I need to do a better job of that. Just sort of moving on again, I was actually quite surprised um, when I actually found this out. But do you think that we need a commissioner of the BBL? I was under the false pretenses that we actually had one. Think that that would allow for a long-term centralised vision for our league? What would you envision a commissioner's role being? Like, what do you see the role of the commissioner as? Uh, I suppose to, to govern... To have some sort of governance over the owners in terms of their their focus, I suppose. So, the, so the BBL has got a management board, uh, and in, and on that it's got three independent directors, and it's got a it's got a chair, so Rodney Walker. So I guess, on some level, you would say he's doing that kind of well. No, he's not. He's not. But on some level, I guess that's kind of his his role. But again, those independent directors are put in place by the BBL club, so they're kind of choosing. And but the, those people that are put in those positions are put in those positions by the clubs so they can choose who they're putting in those roles which obviously then makes it even though they're independent they're kind of not because they've been selected by the BBL so I can I can yeah I can see the argument for having a independent the league has independent staff right so so almost like the guy 
who's who's the oper- chief operations officer, Andy Webb. It's kind of the one that's running the league, so to speak. He takes his guidance from the clubs. So yeah, I can see the argument for having an independently run league that can do a better job of perhaps. I don't think BBL necessarily enforces some of their own standards with some of the some of the different clubs. So yeah, I do think that something like that could could help push the league forward. But again, the league needs to be making enough money to be in a situation where it can beef up the front office and kind of uh, bring in more league staff and, and all this. It's just, it is in a place where there needs to be more, well, needs to generate more revenue essentially. And obviously all this, all this COVID stuff, you know, talking about it's potentially lost, well, the losses are over seven figures to the sport, like doesn't help. So there's no argument that having some type of fully, fully independent overseeing committee, commissioner, whatever it might be, could help push things forward as well well the other thing i was just going to kind of finalize this section a little bit was going to ask around um obviously you know moving on from the commissioner comments there's there's always notoriously been a lot of voices within british basketball governance and as you've mentioned many times like obviously basketball england basketball wales basketball scotland and the others that we have as well could you speak to the, the difficulty i suppose of moving that into a cohesive kind of marketing and, and cons plan so say you know if we were to be like we would want to look at a five-year plan from that respect. Do you think that's something you think maybe Selena would be involved with, but or would she just have only involvement in the BBL exclusively? And therefore, yeah, again, I guess, how much do you think it would be a benefit if we had more conversations or is there more conversations um, around those I mean, types of planning? Yeah, I mean, if Mark Woods always says this, where it's like we need a unified vision and narrative for the sport and we just don't have that. And it's difficult because there is all these different organizations, especially with the way with the way the, the home nations are set up and then having the British Basketball Federation and then the home nations, it just gets messy. And I know, like, I don't know if you listened to the, the podcast with Martin, Martin Henlon reviewing the Madden Review, but, like, you know, in amongst that, it says that the British Basketball Federation will only be successful. It will only work if it's seen as essentially an extension of that, like a part of the home nations, not a separate entity. You need to be working at the same office. You need a co sort of CEO that is also the CEO of Basketball England. So it's like, it's all collective under one thing. And obviously the, that was the recommendation and that is the complete opposite of what's happened where it, it was a standalone organization and there was the, the weird sort of takeover that happened. But all of that political stuff, political infighting are things that, that really hurt the sport. So yeah, I mean, I would love to see all of the home nations, BBL, GB, all sit down together and say, okay, Let's put together a plan. That was what the British Basketball Union was was meant to do. That was set up in 2014, I think it was. Has died a slow death and I don't think ever really ended up doing anything. But that was essentially the whole point of it was to bring the sport together and then put together a cohesive collective plan to sell the sport, uh, to communicate for the sport moving forward. But yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. There's too many, uh, a lot of voices at the table. Like I said, the first, the first podcast I did with Martin Henlon was was titled... British basketball needs to be a dictatorship. And that was his whole thing. It's like, you need someone that knows what they're doing that's going to come in and just boss everyone around and say, this is what you're going to do. You're jumping on the ship. If you don't want to jump on, you can jump off. Just moving on to the next section, Simon. Again, thank you for your time, man. Basically, just looking at Hoops Fix Impact on, on the community, recent work and, and standout moments for, for yourself and obviously Hoops Fix as well. What are your thoughts on the Pops and, and Dane podcast and how do you feel about their intentions to start a BBL franchise? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the Dengen, Dengen Pops was a beautiful way to start the lockdown and to have a scheduled program that I was locked into every single week. 
And to re- again, it's the same thing about like humanizing the players, right? These are two basketball superstars, British basketball royalty that we don't hear a lot from directly from their own mouths. And for them to get to tell their own story and to share insights and to talk about their own experiences growing up in the UK and then their dreams of going to the States and obviously doing what they've done as a career. Oh, it was amazing. Like I, I, I super enjoyed it. Like it was not going to, I'm not going to lie. Obviously I was having to record every single one and then edit it and get it out. Like it was a, a pretty big time suck for me, especially when they were going two hours. But it was, it was one of those things that I was like, this is so good that, if they're not going to do anything with it and it just dies, I think we're going to lose a piece of British basketball history that is very, very valuable. So I was like, well, if no one else is going to do it, I will step up to the plate and obviously strip the audio to put it on the podcast feed so that people could listen to audio only whilst they're on their runs and stuff. And then obviously clip the video and put it on, put it on YouTube as well. So I do think that, yeah, it was, it was super fascinating, super interesting, really enjoyed it. And just, just, you just realize their, their wealth of experience, not just on the court, but off the court. Could we have two better representatives of British basketball, role models for everyone involved, doing incredible things, both on and off the court and wanting to have a bigger impact than, than just basketball. So yeah, it was a beautiful thing. Really enjoyed it. Are you, are you surprised? And again, not, not to dive too much into this, but obviously there were a lot of uh, comments around Pops's revelation about being rejected for an interview for the BBL, uh, sorry, for the Basketball England um, board. What, what did you make of that? And was it a surprise or, or from your experience? Not really. I mean, is there a more British basketball story than that? I mean, that it just typifies the issues that we have within the sport. It's just absolutely ridiculous that you have Pop Spencer Bonsu, one of the greatest players to ever come out of this country, who wants to be involved with the National Federation and applies for a board position and is basically rejected with a... I've seen the email. I've seen the rejection email. Uh, with a faceless email, not from an individual person. It's from Basketball England's HR department, like signed off Basketball England's HR department basically saying that uh, the list of applicants they've had is very, very strong. And so they will not be asking to interview him. And you're there like, the only person that could have dealt with this is someone that doesn't know basketball. Because I refuse to believe that any basketball person would say, we're going to reject Pops and this is how we're going to reject him. Like that is just insane. And the thing is, I obviously the way you, and this is part of what I've learned about when, when I was, researching how to constitute a club and stuff like that when you're talking about having a board generally you have board positions based on certain criteria it's like oh we need a equality and diversity person to kind of represent that we need a finance person to talk about look at our finances and and whatever so maybe the two roles that were going were positions that were completely not under pops's sort of circle of expertise right but even in that situation you make up another board position you literally, and if you don't want to make up a board position, you say, do you know what? We're going to make a new role, official ambassador of Basketball England, and Pops is going to be that person. We would love to invite you over here. We bring you out at some finals events. We do some interviews with you. We get you talking to the press about representing basketball, and we kind of engage you in a way that helps grow the sport. And for them to go about what they did, how they did it, it's just in, it's indefensible. Like, I, I don't care what, there will be no one at Basketball England that can say anything to me that will justify acting in that way. Just 
absolutely ridiculous. And unfortunately, on some level, it doesn't even surprise me. And that's the worst part of it, is that it's not even this is such a rare thing to happen within this sport. I, I can't believe it. It's a one-off. It's actually added to the long list of mistakes that we've made, the long list of, 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 of bad things that have happened in terms of relations between the federations and the players. And just, yeah, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know how you recover from that. Yeah, I mean, I know there, there have been conversations since. There have been people that have reached out and, and obviously tried to engage. And I, I, I don't know what the sort of the outcome of those, those conversations were. But again, this is where I'm, I'm talking about the importance of media coverage and stuff, right? Like if I hadn't have clipped that clip from that full interview, no one would have ever really spoken about it. No one would ever, and it would never have been addressed. And that's just what, that's just how it would have pops would have gone through the rest of his career, probably being some a bit pissed off about Barswing and then just like, you know, screw them guys may never have ended up getting involved, but instead it's a situation where there's public outrage because of this stupid thing that's happened. Everyone's like tagging Barswing and being like, how are you going to justify this? Rah, rah, rah. And then you get people from Barswing and they obviously see it. And then they're like, okay, we need to have a conversation with pops. And hopefully that goes some way in sort of repairing that and, and, putting us in a situation where pops can be involved with the federations and that's just one example of just yeah how important sort of media coverage is 100 man i think you know people like pops are the exact type of people that we want to be reinvested in the sport right and as you say and you know you look at the model that even universities in america have where they have people coming back and investing in universities who are alumni all those sorts of things like that is exactly what we need and he is the exact person or one of them that we need involved in that way right so like this is one of those things in terms of any other sort of standouts from their pods i mean there's, there's probably a list as long as you're on because it was as you say very very good but anything else to kind of jump the page uh well i enjoyed all the early years stuff like particularly the, the london stuff sort of growing up in london that was a big thing i mean the other thing that i didn't realize until i'm pretty sure it was from the podcast was that i never realized that obviously pop's got his, his doping ban and i never realized he was actually cleared a year later, that never came out publicly that he was cleared and he was going to return to play until the San Antonio Spurs called him and offered him a job. And he, and he obviously felt it was a sign and kind of that was how he ended up getting involved with sort of the front office staff of, of professional basketball teams. But I felt that was pretty interesting because, you know, here's someone that is a star of this sport and has that attached to him in a way of, you know, his career ended not in the way that he would have liked, that he, he went out a couple of years earlier than, than he probably should have done because he, he got a two-year doping ban. And for that to get lifted a year later when whoever the agency is realized that it was a mistake and kind of clears his name on some level, and I feel like that probably should be a bit of a bigger story. But that, yeah, that was, that was definitely one of the biggest things that I learned that I didn't realize before. You recently mentioned on Twitter your slight aggravation about how people rally behind new funding cuts but don't necessarily follow this through by supporting local teams, watching the BBL, etc. Are you able to or can you elaborate on your, on your thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I was saying earlier about just the, the general apathy within the British basketball community. Every year, I run the Hoops with All-Star Classic. I always give this as an example. Tickets are £5, you know, basically. It's £5. It's not, it's, it's not expensive to, to watch the best under-19 players in the country that are all going to be future GB seniors, that are all going to be at college next year in the States, that in the States, people will be paying good money to go and watch on their teams. And I just get everyone hitting me up asking for free tickets. And I'm just like... Before, before the Nike deal, the tickets, if we don't sell the, the ticket allocation that we have, we lose money. Like, it has to be a sellout or we lose money. And for people to know that, because I haven't been, I haven't, I've been pretty clear about that kind of from day one. 
as a 100% independent organization that's doing this all off our own back and then people still asking for free tickets. It's just like, well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to support it? If you want to come, surely that means it's valuable to you. So why wouldn't you pay what you'd literally go down to Sainsbury's and buy a sandwich and a bottle of water like every day of the week? And you don't want to pay that to come to the classic. Uh, and that's the same for the same for everything. There's, a, there's definitely a culture of not paying for things, of freebies in British basketball. Everyone wants everything for free. No one wants to pay for anything, especially when it comes to watching basketball. And I guess what, what pains me about that is that people are, the NBA comes to town, I'll spend £180 on a ticket and then, you know, another, another 200 quid on the, on the drinks or whatever. But BBL, BBL finals, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And it's like, well, why not? You're the same person that's going to complain about the sport and the sport is crap and people aren't getting paid enough. But at the same time, you're not reaching into your pocket to help grow it. You're not supporting the people that are doing the things. And I, you know, I, I do have mixed feelings about it because on, on, on one side of it, I'm like, well, surely the reason that people are not spending their money on it is because they don't feel that it provides enough value to them. So it's actually, it's, it's on us as providers, as creators to, to build something, to produce something that people perceive the value to be worth them going into their pocket for. But, you know, if you're going to ask for something for free and you want to go anyway, well, then surely it's worth something. And just, there's just a whole culture around it, you know, and I struggle with, with that. It's a vicious circle, right, though, because if you're not able to promote the sustainability of the product and grow it, you can't enhance the product. And therefore, the quality of the product isn't going to grow. Uh, so, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it so is. It's it's be- a, it's a, yeah, it's a complete self-perpetuating cycle. I mean, I was even having this, this conversation with someone, someone the other day, but like, you imagine if, if every national, let's say, Bar- like going back to things that Barcelona England could do, imagine if Barcelona England put together a guide of like things they'd like to see National League Division One clubs doing in terms of like helping them sell tickets. So obviously there's certain, there's certain clubs that don't need any help. There are other clubs that basically are watching in front of a couple of parents and a dog. But it's like if every club all of a sudden was able to sell let's just say 100 tickets a week, yeah? And it was £2 a ticket. That's £200. That actually, when you're talking about the levels that we're operating at, the size that we're currently operating at, that's not an insignificant amount of money. And obviously, that's only going to increase as you offer the... Because it's like what you're saying. It's like, well, now you've got a bit of money. You can reinvest a bit into advertising. You can reinvest a bit into an MC. You can reinvest a bit into half-time entertainment or whatever it might be. And this is, yeah, this is the whole thing about the sport, learning to be a bit more self-sufficient and need a bit more entrepreneurial thinking, a lot more business-minded business people involved with the sport. But yeah, that's kind of, that is my whole gripe with, with that whole situation. There's just like, there is nothing we do that gets more traffic than announcing that the government has cut our funding or is refusing to fund us in some type of way. Everyone retweets it. There's all this, like, all these keyboard warriors with all this outrage, you know, uh, oh, I can't believe this. Institutionalized racism, systemic racism, which, again, large part of it, I do believe, is the case as well. But also, it's like, when was the last time that you spent any money on investing in the sport that you're claiming to love so much that you want to see the government fund? See you wearing your Nike, Nike sneakers that cost 200 quid. See you wearing your Nike t-shirt that cost 50 quid. When was the last time you went to an always balling and spent 20 quid on a t-shirt from them and actually trying to put money back into the UK basketball game? When did you go to, you know, Hardwood, Hardwood Ventures, the independent store that was in Newcastle, went into administration a few years ago, always sponsored the classic. When was the last time you, you bought something from their site and supported them? Like, it's the same thing. You know, we as a, as a community need to put our money where our mouth is. We want to see the sport grow. It takes pounds. It takes cash. So yeah, that's, that's kind of like my whole gripe with that. I, I struggle with it. Unless people are genuinely going to games every week, buying tickets, supporting their club, volunteering, then I don't want to hear it.
don't want to hear it. It's kind of talent as well, like, you know, people that go to the finals of the BBI every year, like, it's a small world, right, basketball-wise. It could be a pretty big event if we had all of the guys that we were playing basketball with or something, everyone was like, right, we're going every year and everyone will see each other. And, it, you know, it, do, you know what I mean? do you know what I mean? It's like a small community. So, yeah, I, you, you, do, you do see that. Like, you see the James Bryce of this world there every year. Like, you know, he's obviously part of the natural club now, but wasn't before. And we kind of see the same faces a lot of the time. But, you know, maybe maybe that's another avenue where we could be like, what, how can we kind of embrace that a bit? But again, thinking thinking aloud and not saying I have the answers. There's been a lot of new, including ourselves, um, podcasts kind of focusing on some, some part British basketball, some part NBA coming out over lockdown. Some of those have done a really good job in terms of helping with that coverage i suppose what what are your thoughts on those new outlets coming out and, and covering parts of bbl that you're so intrinsically linked with and do you have any advice for those guys that are kind of starting out i mean my thoughts are that it's it's great like uh you know as much as there might be a part of me that gets a bit defensive of like oh you know competitors are coming on and the other people are trying to do what i want to do and da 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 at the same time, I recognize that that is completely irrational thought processes, thought process, and the sport needs as much media coverage as possible. And everyone is going to put their own spin on it. There is plenty of, you know, whether it's if it's an interview podcast or an analyst, whatever. There's pl- there's there's enough for everyone. And actually, the pie needs to be grown for everyone to be able to profit. So yeah, I think it's awesome. I've basically, I pretty much, in fact, I listened to a section of one of your pods this morning because I was aware that I haven't been listening, but every British focused, like British only focused podcast, I've listened to every single episode that every single person's put out just because that's my job. And I, I feel like I need to be on top of it and kind of, you know, it provides useful insight for me. I think it's awesome. I've really enjoyed a bunch of them. I said Chuck Duru with the ISO podcast has done a, a super nice job. Uh, Tom Lane with the UK Basketball Hub was doing a was doing a real stellar job for a, for the for the start of lockdown. He's kind of dropped off recently. I'm not quite sure why. And obviously, well, I mean, Mark Woods that wasn't that wasn't a new one, but MVP cast I listen to regularly. Uh, you got the guys at Below the Rim that have been doing a sort of panel discussion show, bringing on various different guests. You got Mo the Hooper's voice. Um, so yeah, like I've, I've yeah I've listened to to everything, and it's been it's been good. And I think in terms of advice. The key to all of this stuff is consistency. That is the big thing. I actually looked at your publishing schedule and I saw you were banging them out to begin with and then it's been about a month since the last one and it's like, the question on all of this, right, is who has the lasting power? Because I would place money on the fact that lockdown is going to end, everyone's going to go back to work and a lot of people will drop off. The reason the Hoops Fix... So, well, first of all, I don't want to talk like I've been consistent because I, I launched the podcast in 2013. <laughs> yeah, I've done 60 episodes, but it's been over seven years. So there's been periods where I've gone a year without publishing and then I come back on it. And, and you know, obviously I'm trying to keep to a, a, weekly, a weekly publishing schedule at the moment, but certain things to take priority. But the reason, the reason that Hoops Fix is where it is is because we haven't gone anywhere for 10 years. You know, whether that's, we've always been producing content and that obviously changed, the medium changes. Sometimes it's podcasts, sometimes it's Instagram posts, sometimes it's website articles, but we've always been here. We haven't gone anywhere. And so the reason that I'm in the situation that I'm in, in terms of like the opportunities that we might get that others might not and everything else, it's just because we've lasted. If, if everyone that is doing a podcast now continues to do it consistently for 10 years, I guarantee you in 10 years, 
they will have built something that they're probably quite proud of providing that they you know they keep on growing i think sometimes the production values are lacking you can obviously see like i i take great pride in making sure that i want people to think that when we release something the quality will be high they know that in terms of what i'm putting out is you know the reason i spend 300 pounds on a backdrop and you know my entire mic mixer setup is another 800 quid is because i want to produce high quality stuff and i'm in it for the long game i don't look at it as like damn, this is costing me a grand. I'm like, well, I'm going to be using this for the next 50 years, which actually, if you average out over that time, it's, it's peanuts. So yeah, like that's, that's the big thing is consistency. Like it's just, that is what everyone struggles with. That's what it's, and it's the difficult thing to do. Like as much as, you know, no matter what podcast I listen to, even if some of the ones I think are crap, if they've been going for four years and they've released every single month or every single week for four years, that is not an easy thing to do. Like even I always joke about i don't know if you guys want to i do a three point thursday newsletter every thursday right and uh very regularly i'm i mean to be honest during lockdown i've released it every thursday but before lockdown i was always late it was something to be friday it was something to be saturday but you're even honest, then, you're honest about it though mate you say it in the email yeah exactly <laughs> I, yeah because I, because I know that if i don't i'm gonna get someone emailing me back being like oh you're a couple of days late um <laughs> but, the, but the reality is that that you know, so this week, Thursday was a hun- episode 196. So you for 196 weeks worked out. That's over four years. Yeah, almost four years. Every single week, I've made the time to go into my email marketing software and write an email newsletter to my list. I'm even surprised at my own consistency with that. But that is what, that is the key to everything. It's just, it's consistency. It's like you, you make a decision about you're going to do something and then you see it through unless you decide that actually you genuinely don't want to do it, but you don't just let it fade because you lose interest or whatever. It's like, well, don't do it in the first place. You know, I'm very much like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. I want to do it long-term. So yeah, that's, that's the question. Yeah. As much as I've, I've enjoyed all of the, the lockdown podcasts that have kind of popped up, it will be interesting to see who's here in 12 months time. Uh, and that's what I always say. Like, you know, every new, every new podcast that comes about, every new website that comes about, every new Instagram account that comes about that says they're going to be the new home of British basketball. And they reach out to me and they say, Oh, you know, can you give me a shout out? Can you, can you give me some like, um, you know, give us a shout out on Instagram or Twitter. I'm like, no, I'm like, you haven't done anything. Like you've literally come on the scene and now you want to come and siphon my audience that I've built for the last 10 years to build yours and you're probably not gonna be here next week i'm like do what you've been doing for a year and then come back and we'll talk i think some people think i'm a bit prickly towards other platforms as a result of stuff like that but i'm very protective over kind of what i'm going to push what i'm going to promote because i genuinely think the only things that i want to promote to the audience are things that i find i think that they will find value like even something like this i'm very aware that this is about me it's not necessarily about hoops fix so this wouldn't necessarily get pushed on the hoops fix platform as a result of that it will get pushed on my own personals, but not necessarily hoops fix. It's only when I, a lot of time, you know, I talk to Brad about it or whatever and be like, do I talk about hoops fix enough that I think this will be interesting to the hoops fix audience? Because what I'm always thinking about is how to serve the audience. It's not about how to increase my own profile, you know, how to put myself at the forefront of everything. You know, I want to, you know, I'm Sam Neater and, you know, I am the man behind hoops fix or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm looking at, I've got thousands of people that are here to see British basketball content. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about, is this about British basketball? Is this something that they're interested in? And that's kind of like the guiding light of like what I'm going to push. Just going back to Hoops Fix, actually, Coincidentally, uh, do you have a highlight moment since starting Hoops Fix up? <sighs> highlight moment. Well, I mean, the event, obviously, that, that was, 
start i wanted to do that from about so we launched website in 2010 i think from about 2011 was the first year that i was like i want to run an all-star game and at that point i wanted to do a senior all-star game and i remember pitching it to somebody at nike uh, and it didn't go anywhere i've still probably got the microsoft word document somewhere it was horrendous and then obviously to get it off the ground in 2014 move it to brixton in 2015 well in fact actually carl carey dunked on somebody at the 2015 hoops i think it's 2015 maybe it was 2016 one of, one of the hoops all-star classics where it's like we obviously can't dictate what happens on the court. All we can do is set the stage and that. And so for us to have set the stage, we couldn't have written any better to have a dunk like that happen at the event and then have, you know, everyone rushing a court and everyone just going nuts. Like it was a super proud moment for me that I will take with me to my grave. So that, yeah, that probably, that probably sticks up, sticks, sticks out as a, as a highlight moment but the event every single year like i was proper guided to not not run it this year you know last year adding the girls game for the first time going over two days like that was pretty that was pretty epic so yeah that's yeah when, when you talk about highlights anything to do with the the classic i think is 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 the one that sticks out in, in my mind so far and i suppose equally what's been the kind of biggest challenge since setting up hoots fix i mean the, well the biggest challenge is is becoming financially sustainable and viable you know i my goal i don't want to sell my time for money like that is that has been the goal for years i want to move away from freelance thing i don't want to bill per hour uh, i want to end, end up building an engine that is scalable that can make money when i sleep and that is a product based income whether that's software or physical products and that's the challenge that I've been grappling with. And I've spoken about for years. If you go back on, on, on podcasts for years, I, I thought that Mason by now would have been in that situation where it's making 50 grand a month. That funds everything. All I need to do, I don't have to take on any freelance work. And all we've got is a software product that we do with a bit of customer support and obviously building it and improving it. And then on a day-to-day, it's just all full-time hoops fix stuff. So yeah, the biggest challenge 100% has been has been monetizing it and, and doing it in a way that, that I want to do it that sort of allows me to work on the things I want to work on. And, you, you know, we talked about this briefly, but you main, you've maintained independence throughout, you know, obviously you had a contract with FIBA, but still obviously had that caveat in there to enable you to still work on Hootspix. We, we also talked about the Joe Rogan side and your Europeans on his deal with Spotify, which I think was 100 million. Why, why are you so passionate about that? Like in the importance of being able to work on your own work, what's, what's the... The big thing there, I could probably know the answer, but just for I mean, well, I mean, like it's fulfillment, isn't it? Ultimately, if you've got enough money to live and pay all your bills and buy whatever you need to buy, the next thing is making sure that you're doing the things that you want to do, creating the things that you want to create. The more people that are involved with that, like if I'm Rogan, this is you know, you're already making. I mean, there's obviously varying estimates of what he what he makes. But it's pretty safe bet that he's making at least a few million a month, right? At least. Yeah. So if you're, if you're already making a few million a month, at that point, you don't need any more money. You can do anything you want to do. Literally anything you want to do. If Spotify comes and says, I'm going to give you 100 mil, I don't get, even though you're going to, you're going to give up some level of autonomy, well, in fact, actually, it turns out that it's a licensing deal. So he's not giving, like, he hasn't given yeah. up that much. The whole, the whole thing is that he's going he's gonna to take it back. But let's just say that it wasn't that. Let's just say that it's actually, you're giving up your independence. You're going to do this. You're going to be in the shackles and chains. Which is like, why? For what? Why do you need? What's the difference between having 10 mil in the bank and having 50 mil in the bank? It's 40 million. But actually, what are you going to do with the 40 million? I don't need 
40 million. I'm not materialistic in any type of way whatsoever. I've got no interest in buying clothes. I've got no interest in buying cars. I've got no interest in buying flashy watches. Like what I care about is doing work that means a lot to me that impacts the people that I want to impact, the, the communities that I want to impact. Independence is massively important because freedom is massively important and working on what I want to work on is, is massively important to me. So, you know, people, people say to me like, would you ever sell hoops fix? And I'm like, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would. Like, obviously, I'm in a very different situation because actually, financially, I could do with the money. It's, it's, it's a completely different conversation. If I, already, if I was already making 50 grand a month from hoops fix, I ain't never selling it because what am I going to do afterwards? I've got, well, I've got 5 million in the bank to do what with? I'm just then going to start something else that's probably going to be exactly the same thing anyway. <laughs> like, just try and rebuild the same thing. Yeah, so yeah. it's just like, I've already got everything I need. I don't, I don't, need, I don't need that. So... Yeah, like obviously. So yeah, if someone if someone came to me now and said, oh, "We, you know, we're making some moves in the British basketball space. We want to who's fixes a platform. We'll give you ten mil." I would obviously have to think about it. And to be honest, I may end up selling it. But if I if it was five years down the line, and I've already built Mason to a point that's making me financially independent, and I've got enough money in the bank to ensure that I'm okay, I've got a house or whatever, I can support my family, like my sisters, whatever, and everyone's good. I ain't selling for no one. I want to do it independent. I want to do it my way. Don't want to be don't want to be taking directions, instructions from nobody apart from myself. Pretty cool insight, to be fair. Yes, inspiring stuff. It really is. Um, just sort of on that again, do you have a favourite interview you've conducted, um, albeit for the BBL and NBA uh, player or coach? I, I, I've, saw, I've seen some pretty cool snippets when I was doing a bit of research for the likes of D Rose and LeBron or Kobe. If you had to pick one. Which one do you think it would be for yourself? What was the most gratifying one to do? Uh, I mean, well, I don't know. Like in terms of favorite interviews, it's always the recent ones that, that come to mind. Like doing the BBL roundtable, I think was was pretty groundbreaking in context. And I don't like I'm not starstruck by the NBA guys. It doesn't. It's not something that like obviously I have to take a step back. And be like, yeah, it's really cool. But really, I would, I genuinely on some level would rather have an hour with Ryan Richards then I would have an hour with LeBron, which is stupid. I know a lot of people will say I'm stupid for that, but like, that's what I care about. And I'm here to serve a British audience, a British basketball community. And I think it's more valuable. LeBron's interviewed everywhere. He gets asked the same questions everywhere. How much value am I going to be able to add to the conversation compared to if I get someone like Ryan, whose story hasn't been told? So yeah, like the round table. And actually the interview I did with Ryan, I actually think uh, is one of the best podcasts I've done partly because of our relationship, which meant it was a lot more relaxed and the levels of openness that he was willing to go to in terms of his own vulnerability of his situation and kind of growing up and stuff. I think it's going to be, well, I hope it's, it's going to be powerful for people. But for, for me, it was, it was personally very gratifying. And then from the NBA guys, I mean, Derek Rose was like, like the nicest guy the nicest guy and the fact don't that don't tell me that Sam because I'm crazy jealous about that one. yeah no he was he was so safe and that was completely lucking out of being the only British basketball media outlet we got a 10 minute one on one I think it was us and the BBC or Sky Sports or someone that wanted to speak to him that was it went to Imperial College London and, and did a thing there the LeBron interview was awful because I went so the Kobe when you're talking about moments, so Kobe was responsible for the first viral clip that we ever produced through Hoops Fix when he said he would beat LeBron one, in a one-on-one and basically put that clip out. Obviously, it went nuts. When LeBron was coming like a year later, my, my whole thing was like, 
Well, obviously, I have to ask him who would win in a one-on-one. But that's the only reason I need to speak to him because this will go just as viral. And that was just all I was thinking. There was no part of me that was recognizing that he's a human being and that's probably going to annoy him. And I was under time pressure as well, right? You only get like, I don't know, three minutes or whatever it is. So, you, so I go in there. And it's like one of the first questions I asked. And I was just literally like, Kobe was here a year. I mean, you can hear it. Go and search it on YouTube. You can probably hear I'm a bit nervous as well. I was crapping my pants. Uh, and I was just like, you know, Kobe was here a year ago. And he said that he'd beat you in a one-on-one. You know, who do you think, who do you think would win? And he basically was, you know, something like, I'm not going to not take myself, you know, but you guys need to quit asking me that question. Da, 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 da. And obviously then I'm like, damn, like LeBron's just scolded me. And, I, and then I was just flustered. And then I, and I had like another three minutes. And the rest of the interview was just so awkward. But yeah, no, it's been a, a bunch of a bunch of NBA guys. Charles Barkley was like the friendliest guy. Like, as you'd imagine, he's literally exactly as he comes across <laughs> on TV. Just like the best. But yeah, for me, the, I get more gratification out of, the, out of the British interviews than I do the, the NBA guys for sure. To round out, mate, I've got the last bits are on the classic specifically and then kind of your future aspirations for, for Hootsfix. Again, sort of before we get into the historical stuff with the classic, a lot of us were very sort of disappointed for the classic to be cancelled this year. And obviously it goes without saying you'll share those feelings. Because of that, you had a bit more time for other projects. Can you tell us about what they were and is the documentary or a documentary that you you may be working on. I don't know if I'm allowed to say. Is that part of it? And if so, can you tell us anything about it? So, yeah, obviously there was a... Yeah, I've had a, a bit more time on my hands to get on top of a few different things. One of those has been the documentary, which I made... We, well, we started in 2018, so we're two years deep. Basically didn't get to work on it a whole lot last year. I am not revealing the topic yet. Because I don't quite know why I feel like we need to do some type of formal announcement when it's ready and kind of build the hype to it. I don't, I think the more I'm, I'm worried about talking too much because it's going to take a long time. There's a lot of the archive footage that we need to somehow get hold of is going to be very difficult to get hold of. And it's already proving difficult to get hold of. And as much as I like our intention, the intention is to try and get it out by December of this year. But I shouldn't even say that because I know everyone's going to hold me to it. So yeah, documentary is one of them. Obviously, we've got, uh, I think, something like 15 to 20 hours of interviews, uh, which we're obviously trying to cut down into, into a, well, anywhere from between 20 to 45 minute piece, which is no small task. And there is just so much gold in there because the story is just so incredible. And obviously, it's from a different era where there wasn't as much footage and photos and all that kind of stuff. So trying to actually make sure that it's not just 20 minutes of talking heads is proving challenging. So yeah, documentary was one of them. Got a bunch of other stuff. Like just, I've always got like one of my, probably one of my weaknesses is that I have shiny object syndrome and I have an idea. And because I, I genuinely believe, I think where most people get left on the sidelines is they don't take action. Everyone talks about doing things and no one does it. I'm the complete opposite of that. So the moment I have an idea, I put the wheels in motion to make it happen, but then I don't see it through. So I've got probably like 50 projects going on that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to release this eventually. I guarantee you, you're probably going to see a quiz game, quiz card game from me at some point <laughs> in the next few months. Like I'm not, not even joking. And then obviously learning to code. Like I genuinely think if I, if I get to the end of 2020 and I can build web apps, I feel like I'll be unstoppable because there's so many technological solutions to certain problems that I want to solve that at the moment would cost me thousands with a developer that I'll just be able to do myself. So I've got like a bunch of different test projects that I'm 
one of the test projects, for example, was just a it's just a basketball court finder, which obviously basketball has got on their website, but right now it's not very good. I know they're relaunching it. So it's not even like I'm trying to steal their funder. It's just to teach me how to code. It's just a cool project that I'm interested in. But I want people to go to it. Literally, you land on a page. It auto detects your location and it will serve up your nearest basketball court, how long it takes you to get there, best public transport route or, or whatever it might be. And then you index. Like I'm trying to get every single court in Newham right now because I'm just going to start with building it just for Newham. And then like there's eBooks. I'm doing an analysis of Brits in the US college system, which will be a white paper that will be, maybe maybe I'll charge for it when, when it's finished. But essentially it's going to be analysis of the last 10 years of British players going to college, what percentage of them transfer, what percentage of them complete four years, just to kind of get a full understanding. So we've actually got some data to use about the US, the US college route. So yeah, I mean, the projects are endless. They never stop. It's been kind of nice in some ways that during this lockdown, being able to sort of break the back of a few of them, get on top of a few of them, also start some new ones that are going to, add to my never-ending to-do list. We very briefly talked about it, but in terms of the coverage of the classic itself, uh, I remember you talking about how, I think it was 2016 when you, you hired the PR agency and how much of a big difference that made. Now, obviously, we've talked in various different areas about how important that is for the sport, but what was your experience of it? Are you, are you still in contact? How did you get in contact with the guy at the standard? And do you, do you still talk to him when the, the event comes back and, and have they picked up again in the year since? So funnily enough, the the PR guy that we used actually messaged me yesterday about the podcast that they listened to. Essentially, he, yeah, he, I, I think I've said this, but he used to work on the NBA contract for Pitch, which is one of the sort of the best, biggest PR agencies, companies in the UK. And he said he'd give us a hand. And obviously he did. And it resulted in, yeah, like a lot of big time press coverage. Unfortunately, that was the only year we ended up making it happen. So uh, that is the only year that we got that level of, of media coverage. But every year we kind of discuss whether or not we could potentially do it and bring him back on board to, to do some stuff. And I think, you know, next year, again, 100% we'll try and do that because he has all the relationships. And that is ultimately what it comes down to. It's like having someone that knows the people in the right places. Like, I don't know the guy at the standard. I don't know the two presenters on TalkSport. Don't know the guy I spoke to at BBC Radio 2. Never spoken to any of them since. Despite when I left, I said, if you ever need any basketball opinion, you want to talk about British basketball funding cuts, whatever, you've got my number, you've got my email address, hit me up. Obviously, none of them ever do. It's the PR people that they deal with on a day-to-day basis because the PR people are representing a wide variety yes. of people to sort them out with their guests. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's, big, it's a big piece of the puzzle. That's why, like, you know, when I talk about London Lions have an investment or, or sort of money flowing into the sport. It's like you've got to invest it in the right places. And I, I think a lot of the where people are spending their money is, is well, it's, it's putting it all on player budget, but not actually necessarily thinking about what's going to help you in the long term, not just this season. Uh, and that's where, yeah, if I was to, to run a BBL franchise, my priority would be smashing all the money in the front office, running on a smaller playing budget until we're in a situation where we can afford to increase the playing budget by the fact that we've got selling more tickets more fans more revenue streams as you know very well like there's so many different types of pr people so many different types of marketing people like it doesn't necessarily mean they're sports pr or marketing people and i think that landscape's underrated like i think in every business not just this you know in sport but people underestimate okay marketing but you've got so many different areas of that and if you have someone from the wrong area what do they know that's relevant to you the next one i wanted to mention was your favorite players i suppose as obviously you only had the female classic last last year but do you have any favorite players from that specific tournament um and also the male players historically well i mean i mean last year it was quite obvious that holly winterburn is levels above <clears throat> like real levels above 
her talent is just incredible. So, yeah, got to give her a nod to her for sure on the female side. On the male side, hmm, good question. The thing is, yeah, the, f- the funny thing is that my memories of the classic are very, I don't really have a lot of the actual basketball because obviously during the day, I'm not watching the basketball. Like mm. I'm running around doing things. I don't actually see a lot of what happens. And next day I end up always watching the stream, but it's just different, isn't it? It's like, you don't, rem- yeah, it's you, not. Don't re- you don't remember watching a game on TV or YouTube in the same way as you remember a game being there in person because you're, you're vibing it with your friends, with the crowd, like you're remembering the smells and the sounds. So, um, yeah, like I, I probably couldn't even tell you like the best plays that happen each year. Like I remember the dunk because it was the dunk, and I actually saw that with my own eyes. I was in the corner talking to Duco Van Oostrom, who's Devon's dad actually, because Sam was playing in the game. And uh, yeah, and did I see it or I turned? Around? I don't know. I remember being there, like, and I kind of remember the reaction and stuff. But yeah, I mean, in terms of players, like I'm when you're talking about sort of the next next up guys that coming through. Like I am mega pleased that we managed to get Cameron Hildreth last year and we got Jeremy Sochan last year because both of those two really have a shot at being great. And that's from a classic standpoint, like our job is to ensure that anyone that has a shot in the future, we include. And if that means taking them a couple of years younger because they might leave the country and then we're going to struggle. Like Kareem Queeley, we never got him to play in it because the moment he signed in Spain, it's just so hard to get him back. So like we'll take them when they're young if we need to to be able to say that they're an alumni of the game and we've, we've kind of had them in there and been able to document it, get some photos, get some video stuff. See, so yeah, I'm super pleased, that, especially because this year's been cancelled, which removed an, uh, another shot again. We'll still have another shot next year. Yeah, I was super glad that we, that we got those two last year, for sure. Has uh, anyone ever struck you as having the most NBA-level talent? I know that you mentioned Cam Hildreth. Obviously, he's a big conversation at the moment. The player with the most NBA talent to come out of the UK in the last 10 years is Ryan Richards, like without a doubt. It's not even close. He is so rare and unique in terms of what he can do as a seven-foot player. He can shoot a free. He can handle the ball. He can pass the ball. He can hit fadeaways. Like, it's ridiculous. He is legit NBA player. And he will say so himself that he knows he's good enough and has the talent and should have been a regular player in the in an NBA rotation. For me, like when you're talking about NBA talent, like that's the one. Uh, and I, I think in the UK, we're very much not aware of the levels. I don't, I don't think our knowledge, because we don't see a lot of NBA players come through, you're just not aware of just how much better they are than everybody else. You know, when it was funny, like, I used to go to Italy to Treviso for the Adidas Euro camp every single year, which was the, was the international pre-draft camp. And it was mainly second round picks. Every now and again, you'd get a first rounder. And I remember when Evan Fournier came played in it. And you, I mean, he went, he went mid first round. I think he went about 15, 15, 20. He was so much better than everybody. Like so much better than everyone. The levels were just so clear. Anyone that doesn't even know basketball could come in and sit in the stands and be like, who is this guy? Right. And that's from the first round to the second round. You're then talking about, you know, we haven't had any. Ryan's the only player to get drafted in the last in the last 10 years. The closest since then to actually get to the league is is what? Like probably Cavell. Big B Williams. He was obviously playing the G League last year and went to the final four with Oregon and then then was at LSU. But even then, you're like, we, you know, you see certain kids dropping thirty or whatever in some national schools competition. Everyone's like, this kid's going to the league. It's just like, nah, 
not even not even close. Yeah, so it's, you know, so saying that, yeah, Cam and, Cam and Sochan, both of them are very very good and very much levels above everything else that we currently have. You, yeah, I mean, you think Luke Nelson was Division One Men's Player of the Year at 17 years old? Division One Men's Player of the Year at 17 years old didn't get drafted, went to NBA Summer League or whatever, and obviously now he's playing in the ACB. That gives you one indication, right? So at 17 years old, he's playing against men and dropping 20 points on a regular. Jeremy Sochan, 15 years old, playing in the EABL against 19-year-old, 19, 19 years old guys and dropping 30 or whatever against Barkin Abbey, the best team in the country. The levels of these guys are so much higher than their counterparts. And I think a lot of people are missing that contextual relevance of recognizing like this is legit, this isn't. But again, with junior basketball, you never know. It can all change so quickly. You can have got some guys that are late bloomers. Joel Freeland went from stacking shelves in Sainsbury's to getting drafted into the NBA within two years. Didn't start playing until he was 17. John Amici didn't start playing until he was 17. So on the same basis, there's probably guys right now that everyone's saying has got, have got no hope that could end up just suddenly developing in a mad way so yeah for sure yeah those are those are guys that when you're talking about nbas yeah i mean i would love i'd love us to have whether it's soshan or cam or somebody else like a, a legit british player who's come through the system that we've all seen come through and then make the nba and, and be a be a player in the nba i think it'd be so good for the sport because that's what the media cares about as well the media really they cling on to the nba like like no other so i, I feel like yeah it would help sort of bringing basketball to a mainstream consciousness and I suppose talking about that and the levels there, like from when you started in 2010, how much of a learning curve has it been to grow your knowledge of youth elite basketball in the UK? Because as you say, if you come from Brighton or you come from somewhere like we, I live as well, like you're not, you're not around people at that level, even at, you know, the classic blew my mind last, last year. I was like, this guy's what, 15? He is doing, I couldn't do that ever in my entire life. So uh, really cool to see. But how did you go about it? I suppose it just is, again, is it consistency and reps? And just yeah. staying as just, close just, as possibly can be. It's just be, it's being everywhere. Like it's just being everywhere. Like to be honest, I obviously I travel a lot less than I used to. First few years, I was everywhere. I wouldn't miss anything. All my money was spent on going to any national team stuff that was going on, any big finals events, whatever. And like, yeah, as I've gotten older, I I do less of that. And being in Switzerland last year, and obviously coming back in December, and then trying to sort my life out through January and February, I didn't, I haven't really seen a lot this season. So even. We're probably doing a selection for the Classic this year and announcing it, even though we're not having a game, but we're just going to announce these are the players that are selected, which mm. I've got to probably do over the next month or so. But even then, it's so it's difficult for me because I'm, I'm a bit more removed from it. See, I have a, a wide network of coaches that coach you know, all of these kids on a regular basis. That includes national team coaches and stuff like that, which are who I'll lean on. That's the thing. A lot of my opinions on you know, all of the opinions that I'm spouting to you today about everything, whether it's marketing, comms, whether it's owning a BBL club, whether it's youth elite basketball, like they're, they're not, as much as they're my opinions, they're also not my opinions. They are made up of the hundreds, if not thousands of people that I've spoken to over the years that give me pieces of information that I then use to piece together and form my own sort of take on the situation. Like one coach might say this player is the best thing since sliced bread another one will be like actually I don't think he's that good or he's got a shot and then I've got to then sort of work out which one to weight equally because one of them is his own player and the other one is the opposition so there's going to be a, a sort of personal factor in there you know obviously my, my knowledge has increased over the years but I always say like my basketball IQ is terrible I don't know the X's nose of basketball and I struggle because I, I was never coached at a high level I never played at a high level and it's something that I've thought for a long time I would quite like to spend some time studying to really understand because when when someone says you know why do you think this team won over the other 
I don't really know in terms of the tactics. Like, other than the basic, well, they played a zone and then they played a man-to-man or whatever. I couldn't tell you the sets they were running. I couldn't tell you the, the, the mismatches or whatever, or the isolations they were trying to, trying to focus on. I don't see any of that. I don't really understand it. So, you know, a lot of people, sometimes on interviews, I'll get asked my opinion on actual what's happening on the floor. And I, I just say, I'm just it's not, my, not my area of expertise, you know. Like my, I feel like I'm, I've become a better judge of individual talent in terms of its potential because I've seen the guys that are second round draft picks for the NBA and I've seen, you know, the different levels that players where they were at 15 years old and then what they've gone on to do at 18, 19 years old based on their height, their physical attributes, the skill level, what they can do and everything. And so that's, that's allowed me to be a, I, I would say, I feel like I'm much better than I used to be in terms of judging that. But yeah, in terms of the actual tactics, X's and O's, it's still something that probably a little bit insecure about, like that I struggle with. And I think it's difficult to learn, isn't it? If, if you're not playing, like, I don't know how easy it is to kind of learn the X's and O's without being in a system and having a coach to kind of show you that. Just finally, mate, in terms of like future aspirations, and thank you for spending this much time with us. Sorry, it's been quite in-depth. <laughs> in no problem. Um, uh, so thank you very much, man. And um, yeah, the final question would be, you know, what, what are your future aspirations for the Who's Fix brand, your own personal career, all everything that you do and everything that you're working on is helping to kind of nurture and progress talent and media coverage in this country in one way or another so I think you know everyone will be really interested to hear kind of what you have planned yeah I mean what the big goal is to well first of all become financially viable and sustainable earning money in a way that I want to earn money to allow me and Bradley to both be full-time on British basketball stuff that's that's like the first milestone that needs to be hit because then it's like we've got more time more resource to do more of the same stuff so that's, that's the first big one. In the long term, I genuinely think that the way that I can have the most impact is to almost own a piece of the entire ecosystem at every level. You know, me running the event helps me in the sense of understanding how difficult it is to sell tickets, understanding what it takes to run a live stream of, an, of, a, of a game, understanding how you get 74 players 76 players over the course of a weekend in the same place at the, at the right time the logistics and all that kind of stuff. so i want to do more of the the operations side of things one of my long-term aspirations is to own a bbl franchise from the bottom up i want to build it from the bottom up so the only way i think a bbl franchise could work in london is to have a facility a purpose-built basketball facility and so <clears throat> There has been conversations this summer about looking at, well, how can we make that happen? Like, what is the process to do that? And I think that if you look at it as this is a 15-year project, well, what do we do, need to do in year one? Well, the first thing we need to do is actually start doing some basketball provision on the ground. And part of constituting the foundation properly is, is actually looking at running grassroots sessions, CVLs, mini basketball, you know, down to under 10s or whatever, and then build it out from there. If I'm going to do it, which I'm still sort of thought, thinking over the thought process, but I'm genuinely thinking about documenting the entire thing. And so literally day one, be like, my goal is in 10 years time to be running a BBL franchise, let's say in Newham or wherever it is. It wouldn't be Newham actually because London Lines have got the franchise area, but, but wherever it is, this is what I've learned. So the thing is, everything I'm doing right now is helping increase my knowledge to do that, right? The interviews with the owners, the podcast, learning about the history, running the event, doing the media coverage, like it's given me a holistic view of the sport. 
what the barriers are, where people have succeeded, where people have failed. So it's kind of all leading up to this point. So I've genuinely thought about, okay, I'm going to, the goal is to, to have a BBL franchise. It's going to be a 15 year journey. This is episode one. I'm going to release one episode every single month. I'm going to show you what we're doing. I'm going to show you how we're building it out how we ideally go from starting with one session of five kids to 12 months time. We want to have, be touching 300 kids across the borough. Then year two, we're going to look at putting in a under 16 national league side for the first time and then building, 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 recruiting volunteers, like all that kind of stuff and just build the entire thing. And I think to have fans invested in the journey from day one would be so powerful, like so powerful. So that's like a sort of nice, big, stupidly hairy, audacious goal in the long term is, is, is something that I would, I would love to do. But in the short term, like learning to code, you know, building software products, I want to, I want to build a basketball reference.com, but for British basketball, so that you can go and search any game in the history. You can search by like filter it. You can look at, you know, who the players are like that was, that would help me massively as a, as a media outlet. But also I just think for anyone that wants to look up the history of the game, it's something that needs to be done, like digitizing all the records of, of games that have happened. I want to renovate a basketball court, take it from a crappy outdoor indestructible rims to, you know, bleacher seating, fiberglass backboards, spring loaded rims, you know, the whole shebang. The list is is endless, but ultimately it's about, yeah, growing the culture, growing the game and being in a situation where we can all win. You know, the market grows to a size that everyone wants to be involved with it. More people are encouraged to get involved with it because they can see that it's actually going somewhere and they can see that they can personally benefit from it, which I think ultimately will benefit everyone. So yeah, that's basically the vision. Mate, again, really, really appreciate your time. Sam, like, thank you again, bro. Like, I'm, I'm sort of new to this gig and I'm still learning. Um, but to have like someone of your sort of ilk sort of come on and, and you know be so be so cool, man. Like, it's a, it, I really appreciate it. So, um, so thank you. And like I said at the start, man, keep doing what you're doing. And I hope we are going to be one of the rare few that will still be around in ten years, eh? Yeah, so do I. Be consistent with it, man. Be consistent with it. But yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's much appreciated. I don't even know how the, what the, what are we at? Three hours? It's gone three hours. Mate, I don't know. What I lost to fucking, Anyone um, is still listening to this after three hours, like props to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the episode so far. We are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Coming up in the next few podcasts, we interview Alex Arumi, former professional basketball player and author of Gaddafi's Point Guard, chronicling his time with Al Nazir, a team owned by Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. Alex played in the BBL for the Worcester Wolves, London Lions, and Surrey Scorchers before moving to MBL Div 1 to play for the Worthing Thunder, where he has just joined the ownership group of the club. We'll also be welcoming Joe Pynchon, manager of digital content at the Chicago Bulls, who formerly worked for the Leicester Riders. We look forward to having you join us.